Open up your copy of God's Word this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 again this morning. It's the same passage we've been focusing on for the past three weeks. We're going to focus in primarily on verse 9 today, but we want to read the whole passage. Today is Palm Sunday. I hope you're having a happy Palm Sunday. I hope that this week for you and your family will be a week of reflection as we get ready for Easter um, Resurrection Sunday next week. And I, Really, I think verse 9 is a great uh, verse to launch us into Holy Week. Now, as you're finding 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 9, I'm going to, uh, well, before I put some pictures on the screen here, let me just ask the kids out there, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Vera? A horse rancher. Okay. A horse rancher. Great. Okay, Cassie? An artist. All right. Any, any boys out there? Nobody. Okay, Mark, what do you want to be when you grow up? Come on. Okay. Still undecided. All right. A- anybody else? You know what I wanted to be? Oh, we got one right here. A lawyer. All right. We got lawyers and artists and horse ranchers in here. All right. You know what I want to be when I grew up? When I grew up, I wanted to be an architect. Okay. Obviously, it didn't work out. But I wanted to be an architect. I liked drawing things when I was a kid. When I found out that architecture involved math, that sort of did it in. But I loved designing buildings or even designing, uh, I used to design types of airplanes and stuff like that. I just enjoyed designing. So I guess engineer perhaps maybe was more what I wanted to be. But certainly I, I desired to be an architect. So I, I'm always interested in architecture, especially older architecture. And so I, I heard this week... Um, of the passing of a well-known architect just a few weeks ago. His name was Michael Graves. And Michael Graves was the, was the architect who ushered in a new type of architecture in the mid-90s called postmodern architecture. Maybe you know of, of Michael Graves. Maybe you're familiar with that type of architecture. Here's one of his most famous buildings. Postmodern architecture, as you see here, it, it would combine all kinds of different elements of different types, classical architecture and modern architecture. And it was called postmodern, really as a reflection of postmodern philosophy. And postmodern philosophy believes there are no rules. There are no absolutes. And so the approach to architecture was to build a building outside of the rules. You don't have, it doesn't have to all look like the same uh, type of architecture. So it was, a, it was an architecture built upon the philosophical premise that you don't have to obey the rules, and there are no rules. Now, postmodern architecture continued to develop and got even stranger as it went along, and it's still out there today, obviously. Here's one where another guy combines different types of architecture. He takes the classical element and makes it this giant piece right there in the middle with the, with the Greek-style column, and then he puts modern architecture on the left, and he just combines to create a pretty odd-looking building. Again, the idea is there's no foundational rule, okay? Then it went beyond that to, to entering into sort of a surrealism. Here's another building where you have the old architecture right here, this old church, and you have something sticking off the side of it here that's called a building that looks like, I don't know, it looks like an explosion or something. So the, the, the postmodern architecture continued to develop and become even more rule-breaking, if you will, to the point that they began to build buildings that looked like they couldn't even stand up. Okay, like this one, all right? And that's a pretty weird-looking building. And now it looks like the very laws of nature are being broken, and the very building itself 
And so you look at that and you, and you see this postmodern concept of there's no foundational rule. But here's the deal with postmodern architecture, okay? There are some rules that postmodern architecture cannot break. What are the rules that postmodern architecture cannot break? It's the rules of physics, right? Every one of those buildings still has foundationally the same thing every building has ever had foundationally. It's built upon structures that are dependent upon the laws of physics like gravity. And no matter how postmodern these architects want to get, they can't go they can't break all the rules. They can break some of the rules as far as how it should look, but they can't break the foundational rules. Now, I say all of that to simply point out this morning that we as Christians, in everything we do, in all of our good deeds, in all of our works, no matter how they may look or what good deeds God calls us to, no matter how he's gifted us, everything we do as Christians is foundationally centered on one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything we do is, is centered foundationally upon the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the immovable, absolute, and sure footing of everything we do as Christians. So every good deed we do, every work we do, is, should be founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And so that's why as we come to 2 Corinthians 8 9... I want us to see how majestic this verse is because all of the giving that's being mentioned in 2 Corinthians 8 is resting upon the foundation of verse 9. Verse 9 is the foundational principle that not only upholds generous giving, it upholds everything we do as believers, every good work that we want to do. So that's why this, has been, this series has been titled Gospel-Centered Giving. Now, regarding this verse, verse 9, John MacArthur says this. He says, the wonder of this verse is captivating. Its vastness, its profundity, its reality, its impact certainly transcends with infinite glory the simplicity of its words. They embrace eternity and time and eternity again. Even a child can understand their meaning. There are no difficult words. There are no confusing words. There really aren't any theological words. And though it can be easily grasped as to its simplest, straightforward meaning, the fullness of what it says is incomprehensible. With one reading, you understand what it says. But with an eternity, you may never understand all that it involves. And that's this verse 9. It's an amazing verse. It's, it's a theological gem right in the middle of this section of verses that deal with practical things. Right in the middle of all this practical uh, these practical words, ethical words from Paul, we have this theological gem. But the Bible is always structured that way. Our deeds and our actions are always based upon the theology of the cross, the doctrine of the gospel. That's why no one can lay any other foundation than that which is Jesus Christ. So please stand, if you would, as we get ready to read this whole passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 9. And our focus this morning will be on verse 9. We stand at Harbin's because we believe God's word is to be greatly honored because it is his perfect and infallible word to us. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray this morning that we would, we would anchor everything we do as Christians on the immovable gospel. So Lord, I pray that as I preach, you give me the grace to preach accurately and carefully and give all of us the grace to hear by opening up our ears to hear your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, for the sake of context, I want to recap where we've come in this series on gospel-centered giving. Um, First of all, you need to know that the Jerusalem church had fallen on very hard times, mostly due to being ostracized and persecuted for their faith. And so the Apostle Paul was stirred by God to take up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. So he appealed to the Gentile churches to do just that. And that resulted in several churches making a commitment to Paul and pledging that they would, they would give to the Jerusalem saints. So now what Paul is doing is he's making the rounds and collecting that offering that had been committed by these different churches. Uh, but he's concerned with the Corinthian church that perhaps they, they haven't done what they promised they would do. And so he wants to stir them up to joyful and generous giving uh, by giving them, first of all, the example of the Macedonian churches. And, that, and that's where he begins in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So the first week we, in this series, we saw that from the example of the Macedonians that the type of giving that God desires for us is this. It's grace-enabled, circumstance-defying, joy-fueled, open-handed giving. And then from the remainder of the text, we made ten observations, and we put those observations into question form. The first set of the observations, the first five um, observations, we looked at two weeks ago, and they were from verses 3 through 5, which say this, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So we asked ourselves, do we see giving or do we understand giving the way the Macedonians did? Do we see it, number one, as an honorable stewardship, as a calculated risk, as a free choice, as a gratifying privilege, and as a delightful fellowship? Because they were fellowshipping with the saints as they gave to these other believers who were in need. And then last week we looked at verses 5 through 8. Um, It says this, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So 
Last week we asked the question, do we approach giving the way the Macedonians did and the way Paul was challenging the Corinthians to? So do we approach giving as, number one, a manifestation of our devotion to God? Do we approach giving as a means of our submission to God-ordained leaders? Do we approach giving as a mark of our maturation in God's grace? Do we approach giving as a materialization of our love toward God and God's people? And finally, do we approach giving as a mirroring of the gospel of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, which leads us into verse 9. So really, uh, that last question is based upon this final verse, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so this is the immovable foundation of the ethical summons that Paul has put before the Corinthians. The gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is the foundation for us doing any good works, good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So the first thing I I simply want to state this morning that's in your notes is this. The foundation and motivation of authentic giving is the lavish grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the foundational um, and motivational um, centerpiece of this text. It's authentic giving is founded, is sitting, resting upon the lavish grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, everything Paul has said now rests, for, it rests on this foundation. For, you know, they know. This means that what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them of the gospel. You know the gospel. You know about the grace of God. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in his epistles, he does this a lot. He, he constantly reminds people of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1, he says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Likewise, a couple of times in, in, in 2 Peter, Peter says he, he wants to stir the believers up by way of reminder. And so we should, we should apply that to the church life as well. We never graduate from the gospel. We keep reminding ourselves and reminding ourselves and reminding ourselves of the gospel. Those who are involved in the, the counseling conference up there at Faith Community Church know that what they've been doing as you've been learning those things is they keep bringing you back to the gospel to the gospel, to the gospel, to the gospel. So we remind ourselves of the gospel, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here as he tells them that they know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do we need to be reminded of the gospel constantly? Because as sinners, we have a tendency to disembody our deeds and our works and our actions, including things like giving, from their foundation, the gospel. We begin to do works for works' sake, or worse, to earn something with God, to earn favor with God in some sort of way. But that's a false motivation for giving. If the motivation for our giving or for any of our good works is that we need to, we need to impress God or impress others or earn some sort of favor with God, well, guess what? Then we have a building that's not resting on the proper foundation and those works will collapse. So Paul wants to make sure there's no false motivation for giving here. He doesn't want the Corinthians to approach giving apart from the gospel. So Paul reminds them of what they already know, both intellectually, both inexperientially. You know the gospel. You know the grace of our Lord, our Master, Jesus, our Savior, Christ, our King. So, so let us, this morning, along with the Corinthians, fix our eyes on things above by meditating upon this lavish grace, the lavish grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to begin with this morning, we need to comprehend that that lavish grace is, number one, that we must 
in order to understand that lavish grace, first of all, we must glimpse the glorious prosperity that Jesus set aside on our behalf. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, we need to glimpse the glorious prosperity that Jesus set aside on our behalf. Now, let me start by... I want us to understand that what Paul is talking about here when he refers to Jesus' riches is not material wealth. Jesus is rich materially in the sense that he created it all and he owns everything. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. But that's not the focus of what Paul is saying here. Paul is referring to spiritual riches that is found inherently, intrinsically, in who Jesus is as the divine Son of God. He is not rich because of what he owns outside of himself. All things belong to him. But he is rich because of who he is in himself. That's the riches we're we're talking about here. So let us get a glimpse of the glorious riches of Christ this morning. And I say glimpse because no eye can see and no mind can fully comprehend the fullness of his glory. So Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20 is a great passage to go to to give us a glimpse of his glory. You can turn there if you want to because I'm going to stay in there for a little while. Colossians 1 Verses 15 through 20. And in that passage, we see Jesus' riches. We see his prosperity on display. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is God made visible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God made visible for us. Verse 15 goes on and says he is the firstborn of all creation. So we see that he is preexistent. He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities. So we see that he is the creator of everything. So he is the the image of God. He is preexistent. He is the creator of everything. Verse 16 goes on and says that all things were created through him and for him. So we also see that he is the focus of everything. Not only did he create everything, he is the purpose of He is the reason for which everything exists. It was all created for him. Verse 17 goes on and says that he is is before all things and in him all things hold together. So we see that he not only is preexistent, but he is the sustainer of the cosmos. He holds the whole universe together. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So we see that he is a king. He is a ruler. He is the leader. He is the nourisher of his people. And we see that he, in verse 18, as we continue, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We see that he is victorious over death and all things. He is over all things. He is preeminent. Verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in case verse 15 left any room for doubt, we see here that he is fully God. He's not just preexistent. He is eternal. In verse 20 says in through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in, heaven, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we see that he is the only way to God, the only way to reconciliation. He is the way, the truth, the life. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is rich because he is the self-sufficient, eternal God. John 1.1 1, 1 says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So yes, everything on this planet is his, for he created it all. Every nugget of gold, every patch of prime real estate is his. But that's not what makes him rich. He is rich because he is the son of God, the second person of the Godhead, God of God. He is rich in righteousness, rich in power, rich in perfection, rich in holiness, rich in glory. That's what makes him rich. His coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. He is the heir of all things through whom God created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He possesses all wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and might. He is the Lord of lords and he is the king of kings. He is rich in glory. That's the Jesus we serve. The glory of the triune God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see it even in his fellowship within the Godhead. Jesus says in John 17, 5, as he's praying to the Father, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 24 says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And we will one day see it fully and we will eternally behold the riches of Christ. We'll eternally behold his glory and know it. But we can only get a glimpse of it now. So friend, to be a generous giver, the first thing we must see about the lavish grace of Jesus is how rich He is. But we also must see the second thing. We must grasp the scandalous poverty that Jesus embraced on our behalf. We must grasp the scandalous poverty that Jesus embraced on our behalf. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now I use the word scandalous because the cross was just that. It was a scandal. How could God's Messiah, God's servant, God's king, how could he be put to death by God's enemies? How could the Son of God be so utterly forsaken? It was a scandal that kept many, many from believing. Luke chapter 23, verse 35, as Jesus is on the cross, it says that people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, it was a scandal. He couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be the son of the living God. He's dying on a cross. We need to see the scandalous poverty that Jesus embraced on our behalf. It was a scandal that even almost caused true disciples to fall away. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus, the disciples are walking They're depressed. Jesus shows up. They don't recognize who he is. He asks them what's going on. They seem a little bit surprised that he doesn't know what's going on. Are you new to Jerusalem that you're not aware of all these things that have been going on? And they explain to him that, that Jesus was crucified. And then they say this in Luke 24, verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had lost all their hope because the cross was that scandalous. It was that scandalous. But the scandal of what, it was one of God's own doing. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the Father's will and the Son's pleasure to scandalously set aside heavenly prosperity to take on human poverty. The poverty here is the poverty of the incarnation. Jesus did not cease to be God, but he did become man, and in doing so, he embraced man's poverty. Let me remind us again that this text is not primarily about money, this verse 9. Jesus was born into poor conditions. He was born in a stable, and his family was probably poor. That's why Joseph and Mary, when they presented him at the temple in Luke 2, they only brought um, two pigeons instead of the prescribed lamb that was prescribed in the law. Um, But his family wasn't the poorest of the poor. They weren't beggars. And yes, Jesus didn't have a dwelling of his own. We read in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 9 that foxes, this is Jesus' words, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So it is true that Jesus did not have much material wealth. Leighton Ford famously said this, Jesus was born in a borrowed manger He preached from a borrowed boat. He entered Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He ate the Last Supper in a borrowed upper room. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. But that is not the main focus of this text. This text has been misapplied by those who say that God desires for all Christians to be poor. The argument goes that since Jesus made himself poor, so should we. But that's an error that comes from failing to see the type of riches... And the type of poverty that Paul is talking about here. The poverty Jesus embraces in this text is the setting aside of his divine prerogatives in order to enter into this world to save spiritually bankrupt sinners like you and I. His riches aren't about material possessions. Neither is our poverty about material possessions. You could be materially the richest person on the planet and be spiritually bankrupt. So the poverty he came to deal with in our world isn't material poverty, it's spiritual poverty, which also debunks the health, wealth, and prosperity approach to this very text as well. So the poverty he embraced is therefore the incarnation. And perhaps this act of self-humiliation of incarnation is best summed up in the book of Philippians chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the poverty. The poverty of humanity. Poverty on display as the the king of the cosmos. Okay, this is Palm Sunday. The king of the universe rolls into Jerusalem on a donkey. Christ emptied himself. He divested himself of his divine prerogatives, but not his divinity, so that he might enter into our sinful, fallen world, so that he might put matter on. He might put flesh on. He lowered himself in divine condescension to enter into our filth, our brokenness, and our poverty. And he humbled himself to be a slave of men and die a slave's death. Bruce Witherington, I think, said it best. He said, the cross was normally reserved for revolutionaries and slaves. And Christ was both a revolutionary and a slave. 
So he lowered himself into our world to snatch us up out of spiritual poverty. So that Jesus, the prosperous word that was with God and that was God, took on poverty, became flesh, and dwelt among us, according to John 1.14. So let us, let us try to grasp the depth of the poverty now. For the one, Jesus, for the one who deserves all praise, took on insults that we deserved. Romans 15.3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The one who deserves all blessings took on the curse that we had earned. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree. The one who deserved to be faithfully served became a servant for us. Mark 10.45 The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who deserves to be received like a king experienced the rejection that we should have received. John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The one who is the Prince of Peace, the healer, took on pain and suffering that our sin warranted. Hebrews 13, 12, so Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The one who had perfect fellowship with the Father took on alienation and rejection that belonged to us. Mark 15, 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who created life was slaughtered to take the death we so rightly deserved. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And this only scratches the surface of his suffering and his poverty. Our little minds cannot comprehend deity taking on flesh. We cannot imagine what it was like for our perfect God to be so humiliated, to be surrounded with such brokenness and sin. But he did it. He did it for you He did it for me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. For our sake to forgive us and to give us more than we could ever imagine. To forgive us and then give us more than we could ever imagine. So what we need to see next is this. We must glory in the illustrious prize that Jesus obtained on our behalf. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He descended into our sinful world to identify with bankrupt sinners like you and me, sympathize with destitute rebels like us, and stand in our place to rescue us and identify us with himself. Hebrews 2, 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And by him taking on our poverty, he gave us a glorious prize. He has obtained on our behalf riches. Like redemption and forgiveness of sin. 
Ephesians 1.17. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He has obtained for us riches like, like a ransom from sin's power. 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And because we've been ransomed from sin and sin's power, Christ has also obtained freedom from condemnation of sin. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because we have been ransomed and we've been freed from condemnation, Jesus has obtained for us the riches of fellowship with God. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Jesus has attained for us the riches of newness of life, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he has obtained for us the riches of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he has obtained for us the riches of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He has obtained for us the riches of justification, Titus 3, 7. Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And with all this he has obtained for us the riches of sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And we must go on for he's also, he's also purchased for us. He has obtained for us the riches of glorification. Romans 8.30 says, Those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he's called he's also justified. And those whom he's justified he also glorified. And therefore he has obtained for us the riches of eternal life. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's obtained those things for us because he has also obtained for us the riches of being united to him. 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And because we are united to him, he has also obtained for us the riches of the presence of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And therefore he has obtained for us a new purpose, the riches of a new purpose for our life. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we have a new purpose because he has also obtained for us the riches of adoption. We're no longer in the same family. Galatians 4.4 4 says that he came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And with our adoption, he has obtained for us the glorious riches of an inheritance. Galatians 4, 7. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. These are some of the riches. Just some, we're just scratching the surface. We don't have enough 
hours on a Sunday or hours in a year or hours from here until Christ returns to uncover all the riches of what he has done for his people. We don't have enough time. So we're just scratching the surface. Oh, but we need to see this inheritance. So I want to spend a little time on the inheritance. You know, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. Has anyone been to the Grand Canyon? A few people. They're all sitting together. All the Grand Canyon folks. That's weird. All right. So a few people have been to the Grand Canyon. All right. Now, I heard a story recently of someone that went to the Grand Canyon and were kind of, kind of experienced a letdown, not because of the Grand Canyon, but because there was massive fog over the Grand Canyon every day they went. And they couldn't really see the, the canyon. They just saw the fog. But they knew that it was there. They just couldn't fully see it. They knew it was there. And so sometimes when we think about who we are in Christ and what is coming for those who belong to Christ, we're kind of like we're standing at the Grand Canyon with fog over it. We can't quite see how glorious it really is. But it's there. And so let's talk a little bit. Let's try to... Blow a little fog back this morning and let's try to focus on the glory of the inheritance we have as saints. Our inheritance, first of all, is a kingdom. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so with that, our inheritance is that we're going to reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And our inheritance is, is eternal and it's incorruptible. 1 Peter 1.4 says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And Hebrews 9.15 says that, that it's an eternal inheritance. Our inheritance is, is not just a kingdom, it's the whole world. Matthew chapter 5 verse 5 says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. That's that verse and others that go along with it is why I don't have to see the Grand Canyon right now. I own it in Christ. I'll see it one day whether I see it right now or not. I don't have to. And that's why we let go of stuff and material things. If we hold on to our money... Let's say my greatest desire in life is to see the Grand Canyon, so I'm not going to give anything to God's purposes. I'm going to save everything I can to get to the Grand Canyon. Guess what? I'll get to the Grand Canyon and lose everything. And so I don't have to have material riches. We don't have to see the Grand Canyon, for goodness sakes. Guess what? In Christ, we own the Grand Canyon, and one day we'll enjoy it for all eternity. We may get to skydive into it. I don't know. It's going to be fun, though. Because it belongs to the saints. It belongs to those who are God's people. In our inheritance is all things. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. So we don't need things now. Because <laughs> we have all things. Our inheritance is more than we could ever imagine. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. And here's the verse that, that tells me that we've got a lot of fog over the Grand Canyon. As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine it. So this only begins to scratch the surface again of what we have in Christ. But our ultimate prize is Christ himself. 
Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And so do you see why this passage isn't about material riches, but heavenly ones? Now you may say to me, Steve, isn't the context, everything you've been talking about this last week, and everything that follows this verse, isn't the context about how we handle our material possessions? Yes. But the only way we can let go of material possessions for the sake of God's kingdom is to recognize the spiritual possessions we have as heirs of the kingdom. Let me say that again. The only way that we can let go of our material possessions for the sake of God's kingdom is to recognize the spiritual possessions we have as heirs of the kingdom. The gospel, therefore, drives us to be generous. The gospel doesn't cause us to take a vow of poverty. That's not what I'm saying. But it does ground our security and our contentment in what Christ has accomplished and in not what we can accumulate. Philippians 4.12. I know how to be brought low and, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through him who strengthens me. The gospel also changes what we desire. Philippians 3.18 Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The gospel enables us to show radical love with our possessions. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, so what's the ground? The ground is the gospel, right? Verse 17 goes on. But if anyone has the world's good deeds and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so the gospel also causes us to, to lose, to loosen, I should say, our grip on our stuff. Mark eight thirty six says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So do you see the, the, the glorious uh, irony here? Those who try to gain the world will lose it, but those who are willing to lose it all for the sake of Christ will gain the whole world. Only the gospel is the foundation for that kind of living. You can't live like that where you're willing to let go of everything for the sake of the kingdom. You can't live like that on guilt. You can't live like that on law. Only grace, only the gospel of grace empowers and motivates us to live in that sort of way. Christ is our example. He gave it all, but he is more than that. For the gospel isn't just an example. It enables us. It empowers us. It gives us life. It, it is a work inside of us, causing us to live with lavish generosity. So let us close our series on gospel-centered giving with Paul's gospel-centered closing to this exhortation to the Corinthian Christians. This, this whole passage is really chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's one section about giving. So go to the end of chapter 9 or the middle of chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And we're going to close our series on gospel-centered giving with these words. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And we're going to read down to verse 15. End of the chapter. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
There's that focus again on grace, grace enabled, grace focused. Everything's grace in this passage. And God is made, able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. Listen to this. Your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your giving, your submitting to being a generous giver comes from the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That inexpressible gift is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That works in us. That is poured out upon us and works in us. And should flow out of us. In many different ways. One of which is how we handle our money. So thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's let his gift, the gift of the son who died a horrid death for our sins, but then rose again in glory. Let that inexpressible gift be the motivation and the foundation of our giving. Let us be gospel-centered givers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inexpressible gift. It is inexpressible. And for that reason, I stand here this morning, Jesus, and I ask your forgiveness of how poorly I expressed it this morning. We all fall way short of really, really communicating the gospel in all of its profundity and its glory and its majesty. We all... We all fall way short of that. And so cherry-picking a few verses that highlight it just doesn't seem to do it justice. And so forgive us, Lord, of, of not communicating it well enough, but forgive us more, Father, for living a life that doesn't reflect it. How often we don't center everything we do, including our giving, on the gospel. So God, please... Don't make us postmodern architects of our lives that think there's no rule, there's no foundation. Instead, Father, make us like the, the Corinthians were called to be in 1 Corinthians 3. People who build on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ with our good deeds, including our giving. But let us build with gold, silver, and precious stones, Father, and not wood, hay, and straw. Because the wood, hay, and the straw, the feeble efforts that we try to muster up in our own strength, that will be burned up. It will be burned up on the day of judgment. 
that everything that we do that is based upon, resting upon, and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, including our giving, will stand. So let us build upon the foundation of Jesus for the glory of Jesus, for the magnification of, of Jesus' name in the church and in the world, in everything we do, including with our gospel-centered giving. We ask this, Jesus. We ask this, Father. We ask this, Holy Spirit, that you do this in us. Will you do it in us? It's not something we can muster up. We, we need you. So do this work of gospel-centered giving and gospel-centered living in each and every person in this room, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.